Well, folks, it's good to see you uh, out tonight. This is the first of uh, five separate evenings. They're not continuous. We'll do two in a row, then have a break of a week, then we have another one, then we have a break of a week, and then we have two more. So um, I thought it would maybe be good to uh, start with a little music quiz. Um, so you'll not find it difficult to identify the song but who are the artists? Hear that okay? Um, so the song, not hard, personal Jesus, reach out and touch faith. But who were the artists? Somebody got the first one. I, I did them in the opposite sort of a chronological order. Marilyn Manson was the first one, the very rocky one. The second one, Johnny Cash, who I thought actually was the original artist, but he wasn't. Uh, and the other one was Depeche Mode. Yeah, they, they actually wrote it. So um, why am I playing that? Well, it sort of makes the point as we come to this series about thinking about who Jesus is, because those artists meant something very different by the personal Jesus they were singing about. Because Johnny Cash, of course, was a professing Christian. He'd lived a life that was wrecked. But he certainly um, was very uh, clear in, in saying that Jesus was his saviour. But what, what Marilyn Manson meant by that and what Depeche Mode, something, the personal Jesus, you know, when we as evangelicals hear that phrase, personal Jesus, there's a sort of positive side to that because what we think is, yeah, you, you've got a personal relationship with Jesus. He's real and you're in relationship with him. But Jesus means different things to different people today. Is more of a plastic Jesus. You can sort of press him into whatever mold you want. And somebody once said this, the question today, it's not so much Jesus's question, who do you say that I am? It's now more, who do you want me to be? That's progressive Christianity in a nutshell, by the way. They want to keep this Jesus, but they just want to press him into the mold that suits them. So what we're going to be doing over these five nights is, is at one level very simple. We're just going to be thinking about 
who Jesus is, who he is. And the claim of biblical, historic, orthodox Christianity is that he is God incarnate. He is the God-man. And it's going to be a wee bit of a sort of biblical workshop as well. So I hope you have a Bible um, so that you can track with me as we work through various things. Maybe you're thinking, somebody might just be thinking, you know, is this going to be all sort of up there theology and not very practical? Well, can I tell you that there is actually nothing more practical than what we're going to be thinking about tonight. Because there's what's at stake. Absolutely everything in your Christian experience. Your worship, your walk, and your witness. It all hangs on who Jesus is. So that's what we're going to be doing. Now, let me show you this. Uh, I, it was over 20 years ago, I was on the Logos ship. I don't mean I was serving on it. I was visiting it when it was in Belfast Harbour. And they have this enormous, uh, it's the largest floating bookshop in the world on their ship. And I picked up that book then. So you'll see where I've got the title from. And you'll see also the, the, the basic structure of what we're going to be doing. I really recommend that. I'm, I'm sure it's still in, in print. But... The guys who wrote it use a fantastic sort of mnemonic device, you know, something to help us remember what we're going to be thinking about. They use a little idea of hands, okay, hands. And here are the five things that by the end of this series, we all should be able to remember. Five lines of evidence that we can follow that will help us understand who the real Jesus is. Okay. The H is for the honors he receives. That's what we're going to be thinking about tonight. The honors that Jesus Christ receives. And what we're going to see is he receives all the honors that are due to God alone. Next time we're going to see the attributes he possesses. Guess what? He possesses all the attributes of God. Then we're going to look at the names that he bears, then the deeds he performs, and then the seat he occupies. So five lines of evidence that show us who Jesus really is. Now, I want to use an illustration at this point, which is very, very helpful. It's drawn from an American, con American political context, so you have to know a little bit about America, but not a lot. I want to read you this. Suppose you meet a man who claims to be the President of the United States. The fact that military personnel greet him with a salute does not by itself prove his claim correct. The mere use of the title president, apart from context, is ambiguous since he might be the president of a corporation or of another country. If all you know is that he signs bills into law, 
You would not necessarily infer that he was the president of the United States. After all, state governors do the same. Even the fact that he lives at the White House would not be enough by itself to prove his claim. But now, put all these things together in a coherent context. If he lives in the White House at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, is saluted by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, regularly sits in the chair behind the President's desk in the Oval Office, responds affirmatively when addressed as Mr. President, and from that chair signs into law federal legislation. He must be the President of the United States. You get the point. Cumulatively, you just can't avoid coming to the conclusion. Those individual paths have all converged to say, this guy's the president. Well, it's that sort of logic and rationale and approach that we're going to be following as we think about who Jesus is. And the first thing we're going to do of our eight lines of evidence tonight is we're going to be thinking about the honours that Jesus receives. Let me just say, there is the, the, the belief, it's still out there, it's been dis discredited somewhat, but there's the belief that goes something like this about Jesus. The early followers of Jesus, who were Jews, etc., they actually viewed Jesus as a rabbi, a prophet, a, a, a holy wise man. That was, that was really what they thought. But then you know what happened? This Christian message spread. And it spread out into the Gentile world. And as all these pagan Gentiles started to believe in this Jesus, well, what they did with their heroes was they elevated them. They, they sort of assigned divine honors to, the, to their heroes. And that's what happened to Jesus. In a relatively short period of time, Christianity shifted away from that original where Jesus was just a bit special. And then he got this divine makeover and then they started talking about him as God. And then they started to suppress the original form of Christianity. That, that was a very, very popular view. That was your Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code and all that there. That was what popularized that tremendously. It's, it's absolutely rubbish. It's rubbish. But it's rubbish history as well. Because it's not what happened in any sense. The fatal flaw in it is this. The original followers of Jesus were the ones who gave us the New Testament, taking us right back to the source. And as you will see tonight, they are the ones who hold Jesus up as the God-man. That's, that's the original message. So that idea, and it has been in academic circles, it has largely been discredited to some degree. There's a key text, and I do hope you take a note of key verses tonight because you'll be getting a lot of them. Just look at that there. This is Jesus speaking. And it's in the context of judgment and the raising of the dead. The Father judges no one. 
but has entrusted all judgment to the Son so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And I've obviously highlighted the key words there. Jesus, the, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, is to be honored in exactly the same way that God himself is. Okay, eight lines of evidence that are going to show us that Jesus is God because he receives the honors that are due to God alone. First point, and it's uh, very relevant to what we were thinking about this morning. To him be glory. Glory is a very Christian word, isn't it? A very biblical word. When you think about glory, you've got to think of it in two ways. There's the revelation of God's glory. You know, God is glorious in himself, and his glory then is the outshining of his being, the absolute wonder and majesty of who he is. That's what his glory is. And as we saw this morning with Michael Thompson when we read the first three verses of Hebrews, it says exactly that, that the Son of God is the outshining. Am I getting an update? Thank you. Um, Jesus is the outshining of the glory of God. The exact representation of his person. That is who Jesus is. I've got John 1.18 there as well. The first 18 verses of John's gospel. The prologue, his introduction. That's what it ends with. It's building up the one who is the word, who was with God, who is God, who was revealed in flesh, who, who came full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory... The glory of the one and only. No one has seen God at any time except the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. The glory of God has been revealed in its fullness in Jesus Christ. And also I've got the verses on there from 2 Corinthians 4. Very significant about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Paul tells us, if our gospel is hid, it's hid to those who are lost. Because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they won't see the glory of Christ. And then he says in verse 6, that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. New Testament is so clear, folks. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God's glory. That's why Jesus can say, whoever's seen me, seen the Father. So that's one aspect of glory, that Jesus himself is the glory of God. But there's another aspect where we're called then, because God is glorious, we're called to glorify him. To ascribe glory and honor and praise to him. And in the New Testament, you get 
many what are called doxologies. They're just ascriptions of praise to God who is glorious. But who are they applied to? Well, I've given you two examples. Let's read one from the end of Hebrews. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Michael finished our service this morning with the benediction which was these words from Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, that's who we're talking about, may equip you with everything good for doing as well, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Jesus, who reveals the glory of God, is to receive glory forever and ever. Second Peter 3.18. Here's another letter ending with these words. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Jesus is to receive glory forever. Work it out. If he's not God, he's to receive glory forever. <clears throat> The heavenly scene. So if you want a, a vision of the future, Revelation 5, 13. <clears throat> then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that in them is, is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise, honor and glory and power forever and ever. The song we sang earlier, Jesus is the name we honor. It was just full of this. We're doing exactly now what we're going to be doing forever. There's your first line of evidence. We are to glorify Jesus in exactly the same way that we glory, glorify God. Jesus reveals the glory of God in exactly the same way as the God of Israel revealed his, his glory. They are one and the same. Secondly, not just to glorify him, we're to worship him. We're to worship the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. We're to worship him in the same way that Israel was called to worship Yahweh. There's two places you can go that will help us understand this. Lystra, described in Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas go there and they perform a miracle. They heal a man, lame from birth. And the pagans in Lystra, according to their pagan worldview, what do they do? They come out and they say, the gods have come down to us. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes, his spokesperson. What do they do in response to that? Being worshipped as divine? What do they do? They rip their clothes. 
which was a Jewish gesture of standing in the presence of blasphemy. Remember the high priest when he interviewed Jesus? Are you the son of God? Jesus said, it's as you said, he rips his clothes, his official garments. This is blasphemy. You come to the scene on Patmos where the apostle John is exiled and he receives those incredible visions. And twice in the book, the angel who guided him through these visions, John is so overcome, he falls down at his feet before the angel and the angel says, get up, worship God alone. Now, that's how the early Christians handled anyone being ascribed divinity other than Jesus. But how did they relate to Jesus? Well, think of the disciples. We're told repeatedly in the, in the Gospels, they worshipped Jesus. And yes, in the early stage of their knowledge... Yes, they revered him, they respected him, they reverenced him. Their understanding was growing. But what about when you come to the incident of the calming of the storm? Acts 4, uh, Matthew 14, 33. You know, this, what sort of man is this? They worshipped him, calling him the son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, what did Jesus do? Not like Paul and Barnabas, and not like the angel with John. Jesus never at any point corrected them, refused their worship, discouraged them from doing it. He accepted their worship. Jesus accepted their worship. We thought about it this morning as well with Michael. You know, Jesus isn't some elevated being that's sort of like an angel or something, you know, some sort of spirit being. Hebrews 1, 6, God gave the command, let all God's angels worship him. And of course, what are we told in Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, that incredible passage about the condescension of Christ who was one with God, who equal with God but didn't grasp that, made himself nothing. It comes all the way down to the death of the cross and then God exalts him, gives him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue, every knee, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will be worshipped by everyone in that sense. John Stott wrote this. Nobody can call himself a Christian who does not worship Jesus. To worship him if he is not God is idolatry. To withhold worship from him if he is, is apostasy. So... Two lines of evidence so far concerning Jesus of Nazareth. 
We are to glorify him in the same way that we glorify God. We're to worship him in the same way that we're to worship God. Thirdly, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. You know, the Old Testament everywhere assumes that the only proper object of prayer is God himself. Not even angels are to be prayed to. Only God himself is to be prayed to. But listen how the Apostle Paul describes all Christians. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. He's writing to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. That's what it says. And we know, of course, that as Christians, we are commanded to pray through the name of Jesus. He's our mediator with God. We're to pray through him, but also we're to pray to him. There are some examples in the New Testament where believers pray directly to Jesus, which would be blasphemy, by the way, if he were not one with God. Come, O Lord, or Maranatha, or Maranatha, as they say in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, come, O Lord. That's directed to Jesus. Revelation 22, verse 20 as well. But undoubtedly, the clearest example of this comes in the martyrdom of Stephen. Now, I want you to look at this. Do you know this one point alone shows you who Jesus is? And it's just one of, well, by the end of this series, hundreds, to be quite honest. Acts 7. You know the story of the killing of Stephen. Acts 7, verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus. So who was he praying to? Lord Jesus. Receive my spirit. He had just seen Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How clear can you get? Stephen asked Jesus to do two things that only God could do. To receive his spirit into the immediate presence of God and to withhold divine judgment against those who murdered him. That only makes sense if Jesus is one with God. You understand that? So the wee chorus is right. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Fourthly, sing to the Lord. I don't know if you ever think about this, but the New Testament does two things. It, it gives us songs about Jesus. So it does. There, you know, 
probably the majority of biblical scholars would say that those particular passages there are probably fragments or complete early Christian hymns that have been included, either penned by the author or just borrowed by them. You know the famous one, Philippians there, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, Christ who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That there, you know, that's a, it's a song about Jesus. It reads in a particular meter and stuff. It's, that's the way it's written. 1 Timothy 3, 16 as well. We, we sing songs about Jesus as God, as divine. And we also sing to Jesus. If you were to look at those verses, Ephesians 5, 19, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. In the Ephesians context, it's the Lord Jesus. And the parallel passage in Colossians 3 is singing, giving praise to God. They're just equated again. But one thing is absolutely stunningly clear from Revelation 5, 9, and 10. We are going to be singing forever, forever to Jesus as God. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language. And so it continues. And just for the record, by the way, a wee bit of early church history for you. Pliny was a Roman official, AD 111 to 115. And he wrote a description of Christians. And he said this, they have the practice of gathering on a certain day before sunrise in order to sing hymns to Christ as God. So even the unbelievers, the pagans, knew what was going on. Four lines of evidence so far. Jesus is to be glorified in the way that God is to be glorified. He's to be worshipped as God is worshipped. He's to be prayed to as God is prayed to. He's to be sung to as God is sung to and sung about. Fifthly, the focus of our faith, again, the Old Testament the only object of faith and trust and belief is to be God himself. Not to be put anywhere else. But what happens when you come to the New Testament? Let's take the Gospel of John alone. John 1.12. He came unto his own, his own received him not, but to as many as received him. To, the, to them he gave the authority to become the children of God, the children of God, to those who believed in his name, who trusted in him. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, Jesus, should not perish but have everlasting life. That's why the gospel of John was written. These things are written that you might believe in his name. And so believing have life. We all love John 14. You know, in my father's house or many's mansion. How does it start? You believe in God. Believe also in me. 
Trust in me in exactly the same way that you trust in God. He's the focus of our faith. It's either the ultimate blasphemy to trust in Jesus if he's not God, it's blasphemy. You get that? The fear factor. Again, what does the Old Testament teach? Only God is to be feared in an ultimate sense. And in fact, that's the essence of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 10.20 says, Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Only God is to be to receive ultimate reverence in that way. And that is how you get life right, says Proverbs. The beginning of knowledge, of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. Seeing him for who he is and putting him in his place. But what happens when you come to the New Testament? Well, for example, just after Paul tells the believers that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether good or worthless, he's talking about us all one day standing before Jesus. And what's the next verse? Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. It's talking about Jesus as the Lord. We fear him. Ephesians 5, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, or literally in the fear of Christ. It's literally what he says. We are to fear Jesus, to reverence him in exactly the same way that we reverence God. Seventh, serve the Savior. When the devil tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him, Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Only God is to be served in that ultimate sense. And, you know, we all, the New Testament acknowledges, we all live in a web of relationships, authority relationships. There's parents and children, there's the state and the citizens, there's husbands and wives, there's, there's all these different authority relationships. But who are we ultimately to serve? We're to serve Christ. Let me give you an example of that. Take the Colossians one there. This is written to slaves. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So slaves were serving their masters, but they were actually offering ultimate service to the Lord Christ. And what will we be doing again throughout eternity? Revelation tells us. His servants will serve him. Eighth and finally, love the Lord 
and obey him. Love the Lord and obey him. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And this was his answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And of course, we are to love other people. We're to love our family. We're to love our neighbors. We're to love other believers. We're to love even our enemies. But only God is to receive absolute devotion. And in biblical terms, loving is not primarily an emotion or a feeling. It is a loyal commitment. A loyal commitment. And that's why in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, love is inextricably bound up with obedience to God's commands or to Christ's commands. But what do we find in the New Testament? That Jesus insists upon the same absolute devotion, total commitment, unqualified obedience of heart and life that is due only to God. That's what he insists upon. Matthew 10, 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Luke 14, 46. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that's a Jewish way of speaking. It's hyperbole. It's speaking of hate, not in the sense of going out and doing them harm. But by comparison, these relationships of love look like hate compared to what is ultimately required of loving the Lord. Jesus says that's what he's to receive. Now, you can't have a Jesus who just accommodates everyone. He's not just someone who's, who's maybe a bit odd or arrogant or delusional or cruel. If Jesus is not one with God, this is ultimate blasphemy. To demand absolute obedience above every other love relationship. Now, just give me one minute to wrap this up to tie it together, to see what we've been doing. Who is Jesus that I hope you are in a personal relationship with? Who is he? He is the God-man. He is God incarnate. And he is to receive all the honors that are due to God alone. That means we are to glorify him exactly the same way that God is glorified. We are to worship him. We are to pray to him. We are to sing to him. We are to believe in him. We are to fear him. 
We are to serve him. And we are to love and obey him. If we're to do all that, can he be less than God? Can he be less than God if he's receiving all that honor? That is just nonsense to say that. It's worse. It's blasphemy. That is who our Jesus is. That's just one of the five lines of evidence showing us who Jesus is. Next time, we're going to be thinking about the attributes that Jesus possesses. And that too will show us, to quote Gaz this morning, Jesus doesn't belong on any comparative list. Doesn't belong. He has no competitors. He's in a different category. He's in a category of one. That of God. That is who our Jesus is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the clear testimony of your word as to who Jesus is. Father, we, at times we, we know that we can maybe be overly familiar. There's a familiar, familiarity with the Lord Jesus that is good, but there is, we can overstep that, Lord, and we can sort of take him for granted. Um, and, and lose just the, the sense of wonder as to who Jesus is. And so, Father, we pray even as we, as we spend these opportunities just reinforcing ourselves with a vision and an understanding of the deity, the godness, the godhood of Jesus that he will indeed, as we prayed, be uplifted in our estimation, that we will afford to him the honors that he is due. So Lord, how could we not then commit ourselves afresh to the Lord Jesus as we go back into our lives and into our family situations and our communities? Lord, help us to carry this understanding of who our Savior is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.